Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who believes on the Son has eternal life. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his direction on our study this morning. Let's pray. What a privilege it is, Father, that we have your word before us, that over a span of 2,000 years you revealed yourself to prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, so that we have your revelation before us, your the information that you would have us to know about life and about the spiritual life, that we may come to understand and know you, and that we may come to understand and know what you have provided for us and how you have solved the greatest problem we'll ever face, which is our spiritual death, our separation from you, and that you have solved that through the tremendous work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where he died for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again. And, Father, we rejoice in that. And as we study this morning, reflect upon uh, his resurrection and all that that means and all that it implies for us today, We pray that you would challenge us with these truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important? What is its significance? Is it just some historical event? Was it uh, not even a historical physical event? Was it just some sort of Uh, event that was imagined by the disciples, or was it just some sort of spiritual resurrection? If it was a physical resurrection, why is that so important? What is that significance for us if, after all, the gospel is focusing on his substitutionary death for us on the cross? Those questions are answered for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This epistle was written to a church that was founded and established by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. And it was founded in a rather large Greek city that was located on a port down on the isthmus between the upper part of Greece, Achaia, and the lower part, which is a Peloponnese Peloponnesian Peninsula, and Corinth had a 
rather interesting culture because it was a place where many retired uh, Roman military uh, went to live. It was a port city. It was known for having every form of religious option available to it. Uh, being a port town, there were always uh, sailors coming into town, and so if there was any sin that made you happy, you could get it easily in Corinth. It was also in Greece, which was a culture that had prided itself on its intellectual achievements in terms of the uh, philosophy from the pre-Socratics through uh, Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, and on up to the first century, which was dominated more by the thinking, the philosophy of the Stoics and Epicureans. As a result of the influence of the uh, rationalism and empiricism of Greek cultural thought, these believers in Corinth had come to a point sometime after Paul had left that they began to question some of the things that he had taught them. And, and the, their lifestyle still reflected a lot of their lifestyle before they were saved. And this church was perhaps the worst church that we see in the New Testament period. It was characterized by all manner of division, divisiveness, argumentativeness, uh, sins of immorality were uh, just uh, looked past and no one seemed to care. And intellectually, they began to try to reinterpret the Bible in terms of their uh, Greek cultural grid and Greek philosophical grid. And so throughout this epistle, the Apostle Paul is having to correct them, both in terms of their behavior, but also in terms of their thinking. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is addressing the last issue that he is addressing in this epistle and that he has to straighten out, and that has to do with the doctrine of the resurrection because they had come to doubt that there was such a thing as resurrection from the dead, physical bodily resurrection. That's what the Scripture means when it speaks of resurrection, that is, being raised from the dead to new life. It is a term in the New Testament that is restricted to an eschatological significance. That's a fancy word for saying something in the future. It has to do with uh, being uh, uh, given new life, not physical or mortal life, but a new life, immortality, and spending eternity uh, in heaven. And so Paul begins to address this in the first verse, and he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. Now I don't want to do a detailed uh, exegesis, that means a detailed analysis of each word and phrase as we go through this. I want to rather look at his overall presentation and argument in 1 Corinthians 15. But I do want to point out some details that we need to be aware of because they help us understand what he is saying here and why he is saying it. He starts off by saying, Now I make known to you, and this is a present tense verb, which means he is focusing on what he is explaining to them at this particular time. Now he is talking to them 
as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made that clear from the beginning of this epistle that they are believers. So he is going to, he is reminding them in essence of what he had formerly taught them in terms of the gospel. And the verb that is used there that's translated the gospel, which I uh, preach to you, uh, is the use of two cognate words, two similar words, the gospel, which is the noun euangelion, where we get our English word uh, evangelist, and the verb euangelizo, which is where we get our word to evangelize, our verb to evangelize. So he uses these two words together, so it's not simply the gospel which I preach to you, but it is, he, he repeats that idea, so it is the good news which I uh, gave to you, or the good news which I preached to you as good news. There's a, a repetitiveness there that is somewhat lost in an English translation. But as we study this word, the gospel, in the scriptures, it doesn't always refer to that nugget of truth that a person must believe in order to be saved. Now, that may be news to some of you because in English we tend to use the word the gospel to refer simply and only to that message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. But when we see the content of what is stated in, quote, gospel presentations in, for example, the book of Acts where the writer says, this is the gospel which I gave to you, there's a lot of information that is given in those presentations, but at the heart of it is always this message of how God has provided the good news of our salvation. That's the good news that the problem that we have in life has been solved by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, people think of that problem in different ways. Some people, when they come to an understanding of what Jesus Christ has done to them or coming from a position where they are burdened by guilt. They are not as concerned about perhaps their relationship with God or uh, regeneration or getting new life or some other aspects of what Christ did on the cross. They are coming from a position where they are feeling burdened with guilt, and the message that they latch onto is that Christ paid the penalty and there's forgiveness of sins, and so there is the guilt is wiped away. Others come to the gospel from a position where they are concerned about forgiveness of sin, and so they focus on that aspect. Others say, well, how in the world can I ever get into heaven? And they learn that when we trust in Christ as Savior, God imputes or he credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so what they're focusing on is the message of justification, the Bible says. And then there's others who recognize that somehow to get into heaven, I, I just can't get there. How, how do I get there with this mortal body? And the focus is more on regeneration. Jesus focused on that message with Nicodemus, and he said, uh, how do you as a teacher of the Bible, ruler of the Jews, not know that in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again? So there's different facets or aspects to the problem that we have, 
And there are different facets or aspects of what Christ did on the cross that relate to those other problems. And the gospel is basically the good news that you recognize that you have problem X, whichever of the above it might be, and that what Jesus Christ did on the cross gave you regeneration or justification or forgiveness or remission of sins. And that it is what Jesus Christ did on the cross that solves my problem so that now that problem is solved and I have, as a result, eternal life. That is the gospel. And so when you come to these passages, for example, if you were to read through the book of Acts and analyze each of these gospel presentations, Peter and Acts 2, Peter again in Acts 3, Peter and John, uh, Paul later on in passages such as Acts 13 and Acts 17. What you see is different aspects, different elements of what Christ did on the cross being emphasized, and it is often shaped and focused depending on the group that is being addressed. For example, if Paul is addressing Jews, he will go to Old Testament Scripture. And he will focus on how those Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his death, burial, and resurrection, and thus showing that Jesus is the Messiah because they already understand that the Messiah is going to come and solve their problems. And so once they understand that Jesus is the Messiah, then when they put their faith and trust in him, they're understanding all that he was to have done for them according to the prophets. But when Jesus speaks to, I mean, when Paul speaks to the Greeks, when he goes to the Gentiles who don't have any background in Old Testament uh, theology, they don't understand anything about the God of the Old Testament, they don't understand any of the uh, prophecies that uh, are there from the prophets, Paul addresses it from a different perspective. He needs to define not only who Jesus is, but in back of that, he needs to define who this God is that he's talking about, that he's not talking about uh, Zeus, and he's not talking about Apollo, and he's not talking about any of the other gods in the Greek pantheon. He is talking about, as he said in Acts 17 at... Um, uh, at the Areopagus, Mars Hill in, in Athens, he said, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. This is the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And he started with creation to define, first and foremost, who that God is that we have a problem with. And then it is that God who resolves that problem for us. So when we read this in 1 Corinthians 15.1, he says, I make known to you, he's talking about what he's going to do now, the gospel which I preach to you. In other words, he's going to unpack for them some of the implications of that gospel he taught them originally, the entire message that he uh, proclaimed to them, which they had received, they had accepted that in the past. And then he says, in which also you stand a... Uh, it, it is a present emphasis, but the verb form there is a perfect tense verb in the Greek, which means it emphasizes an action that's completed in the past with results that continue, but in this uh, 
in this context, it's emphasizing the present results of that completed action that was completed in the past. And so it is focusing on, at this stage, something in which they stand, their present position in Christ. And one of the terms that the Apostle Paul uses throughout his epistles is this word, um, in Christ, being in him, that when the person, an individual, trusts Jesus as their Savior, they are in him. They're placed in Christ. And so our standing is now in him, and it is his righteousness that has become the basis for our salvation, not not what we do. This is seen in passages such as Romans 5.2, where Paul stated uh, to the Romans that through whom, that is Jesus, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. One phrase, this grace in which we stand. It is our present standing before God that was finished in the past when we trusted Christ and our Savior and were identified with him, and therefore we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Whenever we see that word hope, it is always a future-looking word. It looks forward to a, our confident expectation of ultimate salvation and being in the presence of God. Then we come to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2. And I have a corrected translation up here in yellow because we lose a little bit of the impact of it. Uh, in a standard English translation. It says, by which also, that is also going back to that grace. The by which references back to the grace of God. It is by grace through faith, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we are saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul says, by which also you were, you are saved. Do you want to say anything there about the tense? He doesn't say by which also you were saved. But wait a minute, I thought you said that they were saved when Paul was there the first time. Yes, they were. But the Bible often uses the word saved in a way different from the way we normally use this in modern Christian uh, jargon. We usually think of the word saved as being equivalent to moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. That act that Paul really refers to in Romans is justification. That time when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, when we move from spiritual death to spiritual life, from being unrighteous to receiving the righteousness of Christ and being declared justified, moving from being uh, unforgiven to forgiven. It is at that, that instant that we, we in our everyday jargon talk about that as getting saved. But the Bible uses the word saved in more than one sense. Sometimes it refers to that instant of justification as being saved, as Paul does in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. In other places, he uses it to refer to that ultimate salvation, which we call glorification, when we die and we're absent from the body, and we're face-to-face with the Lord. But in many places, he uses that to refer to 
our present spiritual growth because in these three senses of salvation, we're saved from the penalty of sin when we trust in Christ. We're saved from the power of sin as we grow spiritually. We're saved from the presence of sin when we depart this body and we're face to face with the Lord. So Paul says it is by, by which, by this grace also, You are being saved, and by which he means you are growing spiritually. You are being saved from the uh, power of sin in your life today. And then he says, if you hold fast to the good news which I proclaimed, unless you believed to no purpose. See, when it says, unless you believed in vain, some people get the idea that what that means is that you had a belief in Jesus that wasn't a saving belief in Jesus. And there are those that think that you can have a pseudo-faith in Jesus that doesn't save because you didn't have the right kind of works afterwards. And that's just a subtle form of introducing works into into salvation that somehow we validate our salvation by what we do after we're saved. And if you don't have the right kind of works, then you didn't have the right kind of faith. But the Bible only speaks of one kind of faith in Jesus. And if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that's the right kind of faith because it's focused on the right Savior. So what Paul is saying here is, by which, that is, by this grace, also you are being saved, growing spiritually, if, and he says, if and if this is true, if you hold fast, to the good news which I proclaim. Now that phrase, good news which I proclaim, again in the, in the Greek, uses that verb, uh, euangelizo, which emphasizes, uh, preaching or proclaiming the gospel, the good news of salvation. And so he says, unless you believe, but not in vain, the Greek word there means to no purpose. See, you and I are saved not simply so that God can enjoy your scintillating personality before him in heaven forever, but you are saved for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God as a summary term, but it involves numerous things. We are to glorify God in our work in our marriages. We're to glorify God in our thought life and in the things that we do. We are to glorify God and be testimonies to his grace before men and before the angels. There is a purpose to our salvation. We are not saved simply to secure an eternal destiny in heaven. We are saved so that we can begin to grow today and be prepared to, for a future destiny, the scripture says, where we will rule and reign in our resurrection bodies with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and on into heaven. So what Paul says in this introduction here is that what he is focusing on as he unpacks the gospel for them in this chapter is not a focus on their past justification, but he wants them to understand that the doctrine of the resurrection, the physical bodily of, resurre- of the resurrection of Christ, has an impact and is vital to their present spiritual life and spiritual growth. And so in the discussion of that, we introduce it there, but then he is going to focus it, focus it for us in his conclusion. He says a lot between verse 4, I mean verse 3 and verse 57. 
And I want to go to verse 57 and 58, the last two verses in the chapter, because that's where he unpacks the significance of the resurrection for us. Having gone through all of the evidence for the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, stating that without a physical bodily resurrection, there is no hope, there is no Christianity, there is no salvation. We are uh, above all men fools if there was no actual physical bodily resurrection. He then explains why it is so important, and it has to do with the fact that in mortal bodies we cannot uh, be in heaven, we cannot be in the presence of God, and that there is a future destiny for us with incorruptible, imperishable bodies where we will live on forever in immortality. But it's not just limited to the future by and by. We read in verse 57 that it gives us a present mental attitude of victory. Because if God solved the greatest problem you face, which is spiritual death and death, then he solves all the other problems. So we dare not be pessimists. We are to be optimists, optimists on the truth of the word of God. And he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a victory over death in context. And then he draws the application. I want you to notice that Paul goes through 57 verses of pretty technical logic and pretty detailed reasoning, and his application is one verse. The reason I point that out is we live in a culture today where people want to come to church and they want the pastor to give them five ways to have a happy marriage. They want to give three ways to be financially solvent or seven ways to be successful in business. But they don't want to go through what lies behind any of those principles, and that is to learn how to think in the creation the God of the Bible made according to the way the God of the Bible thinks so that then as an outgrowth of right thinking, they can have right decisions and right actions. So Paul gives this detailed, intricate rationale for 57 verses before he gives the application. One verse application. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The focal point is that last phrase, because you know something. What is it that you know? Well, what he's just spent 57 verses describing. Because you know that Jesus Christ died physically on the cross. And there's tremendous amounts of evidence to the fact that he actually died on the cross. He didn't just pass out. He didn't swoon. You know, there's always somebody comes along every few years, every decade or so, and comes up with some new theory. It's really an old theory that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. But if you understand the dynamics of crucifixion, and if you understand the uh, requirements of Roman law, then you recognize that it's impossible that he could not have been dead. Because according to Roman law, they had to verify that the criminal that was taken off of the cross was dead. 
And so Pilate, in conformity with Roman law, had dispatched a uh, group of four Roman soldiers to verify that. And this was why the one soldier pierced Jesus' side with a spear to make sure he died. On a, on a cross, in a crucifixion, the death wasn't from bleeding to death. The death was from suffocation because as that body hung there on the cross with those arms pinned to the crossbar and the uh, feet nailed to the upright piece, that as that body hung there, it would force the, the pressure of all of the intestines and all of the internal organs would press up against the diaphragm. And it would be very difficult to breathe, and so it was necessary for the person on the cross in order to breathe to pull himself up, which must have been an excruciatingly painful ordeal. And then he would gasp for some air and then eventually tire and sink back down until he ran out of air again, and then he would pull himself up. And so a person could often last for a day or two or three on the cross before finally suffocating to death. But because this was the day before Passover, it's a high holy day in the Jewish calendar, it was necessary that these bodies be taken down from the cross, that they be dead. And so they were going to speed up the process, and the uh, Roman soldier pierces Jesus' side with the spear and the description from John, which he would not have known uh, since this is a modern medical fact and understanding, but he observed what came out, and it was not blood. It was a mixture, he says, of blood and water. He's describing the red uh, corpuscles and the clear liquid, the limp that would have come out, and the blood only separates like that after, after death. This is clearly attested by modern uh, medical Knowledge, And so what, what John observes when he says that out came the serum, the blood and the serum, he is saying that he is observing what could only be true if the Lord Jesus Christ was already physically dead. Uh, furthermore, when these Roman soldiers came out there to take the bodies down, there would have been penalties for them, death penalties for them, if they had not fulfill their mission. If they had allowed these men to be alive and to escape, then their life would have been forfeited. Same thing was true with the guard that was placed on the tomb, that if they were to allow somebody to come and steal the body or if they were to uh, fall asleep uh, in, the, in the process and have someone steal the body, then they would forfeit uh, their life, and there would be uh, tremendous physical punishment leading up to their death. And so it is impossible to think that Jesus uh, only swooned or passed out or it was, uh, the resurrection was just a hoax and the disciples stole the body. This just doesn't fit with the facts of history as we know it or the descriptions that we have uh, in, the, in, the, in the text. And so what Paul is saying is because we know with certainty that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, resurrected, he conquered death, that he received a new body that was actually composed of the, of the molecules of his previous body. That's why the tomb's empty. He didn't just get a new body, body number two, 
that somehow God transformed the physical body that he had had before of flesh and blood into one that's described in 1 Corinthians 15 as flesh and bone, so that now he has a new body that is not restricted by space and time as ours is and not uh, hindered by physical uh, physical laws, and so we can have victory over death because of that. And so Paul says, because we know this, we recognize that our labor is not in vain. The Greek word there translated labor is the idea that can also include adversity and suffering. It's the idea of hardship, the difficulty we have of living the Christian life, the spiritual life, in the midst of a pagan world, in the midst of the devil's world, that often it seems like we're beating our heads against a wall and we get tired of living in this veil of tears and we desperately desire for the Lord to come back. But what Paul is saying here is because we know of the resurrection of Christ, we know our labor, that which we go through to in our spiritual growth is not in vain. And so he can then command them to be steadfast. That means to be consistent in your spiritual growth. Be consistent in coming to Bible class or listening on the Internet or where you have regular Bible study where you are being fed the Word of God. For that is why you were saved. You weren't saved so that you can just live your life the way you want to. You were saved so that you can glorify God and experience the real a happiness and blessing that God has for you in this life. But to do that, you have to be uh, steadfast. You have to persevere. You have to be immovable. That means that you don't let the details of life uh, shake up your schedule every week. So for some reason, I've been trying to go to Bible class all year, and, and now I just can't seem to make it. It's been six months, and something always came up. Immovable in your uh, application of the word that we are going to commit ourselves to uh, apply the word consistently. We're going to fail at times. That's why we have First John one nine, the principle of confession. But we are to may be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We are to consistently be. Uh, about bounding in that production. That production comes from the Holy Spirit by walking by the Spirit. The Scripture says that we have uh, the Holy Spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and that is character transformation. As that character, uh, the, as that character is transformed, then we glorify God. As that character is transformed, we learn that we are to serve the Lord in our lives today. That work of the Lord sometimes bothers some people. They say, well, it's not about works, it's about grace. But we are saved in order to serve the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 states that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of our own works. It's not of works lest any man should boast. That's right. Works aren't involved in getting saved either on the front end or the back end. But verse 10 goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved to serve the Lord. We are saved to grow spiritually that our lives can uh, honor and glorify him. This is what Paul unpacks from his 
discussion on resurrection. Resurrection isn't simply a historical fact. It's not just some mystical event that was made up by the disciples. It is not just some sort of uh, religious uh, defense that the early Christians came up with, but it is a physical reality. Jesus conquered death, and God the Father raised him from the dead. And he had victory over death so that we can serve him. And because we have that victory over death, that gives us courage, that gives us conviction today that we are to live for him, that we can have this this work in our lives from our walk by the Holy Spirit that honors and glorifies him with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we are so thankful today that we've had this opportunity to be challenged by your word, that that we understand that the doctrines and truths that we hold so dear of Scripture are not just uh, abstract, academic, or historical uh, doctrines, but they are designed for a purpose, a purpose that impacts the way we think, the way we live today, and that the more we come to understand all that you did for us, at the cross, all that Christ accomplished for us on the cross, the more we come to understand those things, the more we realize that, that we are, have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are not ours. We are yours, and we are to live for you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says that Christ died on the cross for your sins. When he hung there on the cross between heaven and earth, God the Father poured out your sins upon Jesus Christ. He had you in mind, and he died for you. The moment you believe that, the moment you trust in him that what he did on the cross solves your problem, that instant God the Father justifies you. You are born again. You receive a new life in Christ, and you are a new person in Christ, the Scripture says. And that can never be taken from you. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to change your life. You don't have to make a bargain with God. Scripture says all that you need do is to believe Jesus died on the cross for you, and at that instant, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us, strengthen us, encourage us, By that which we have studied this morning, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.